Hey guys, welcome to MAU Talk, a podcast from MAU Vegas, the premier mobile acquisition and retention summit. On today's episode, Adam chats with Gina Gotthilf, co-founder at Latitude, to discuss some esoteric mobile growth topics, as well as some of her greatest achievements that she took lead on within her previous roles. Take it away, Adam. Uh, Gina, thank you for joining me. Um, Gina Gotthilf, for anyone who doesn't know her, although most people in the mobile app install ecosystem probably do. I think Gina, we probably first met, I don't know, four or five years ago in MAU context. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having me at MAU many, many years ago. Indeed, indeed. Um, Okay. So Gina, this this is what I wanted to cover. I wanted to not spend too much time on the past, but certainly have to speak to Duolingo and, and maybe even some of the Tumblr stuff and, um, and then get into modern day. And then I had some more kind of esoteric growth topics to talk about around like press, which I know you've done a lot of, et cetera. So um, this podcast primarily focuses on mobile growth, but you know, at this point, I think growth and mobile growth are basically synonymous. So when in your career, did you first start interacting with native applications, iOS, or Android stuff? That's when I started working with Duolingo, but to be super candid, I never actually thought that this was what I was gonna do. I didn't really realize that like, if you asked me at a time, like, are you interacting with native apps? I wouldn't really know what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so it kind of all happened step-by-step, step, um, not by accident per se, but it was not as planned as people would think. Um, I've been working with Tumblr before, but that was very web-based. Uh, there was there mm-hmm. was an app as well, but like we were we were mainly focused on the on the on the web, and my work was really not uh, we I couldn't really touch the products because I was just doing quote unquote marketing, and so I wasn't really interacting with engineers, designers, etc. But when I started working with Duolingo, actually one of my first jobs there was to help them launch their Android app. Oh, okay. And at the time, I assume what year did you would did you start at Duolingo? 2013. Okay, so you're pre- pretty early in the App Store ecosystem, um, which I can't remember when the iOS store launched, but not that many years before that. Okay, and so you started working on this Android app product. Um, talk to me about how how did your role evolve at Duolingo? Because I know you were there for a, a big part of the company's growth, although they, that that trajectory has continued to today. So what did what did it? What did it look like as you evolved into a quote unquote mobile growth person before that was really a title that existed? For sure. Um, So I was a Duolingo for five years and they hired me as a consultant to help them grow in Brazil. That was kind of the context. I had just opened a company to help tech companies and startups grow in Latin America and position myself as an expert in that only because I had helped Tumblr grow in Latin America. Um, And so they hired me as a consultant and my sort of the only stuff I was doing originally was figuring out how to get Brazilians, Chileans, and Argentinians to hear about Duolingo. And so that translated into press and some social media, figuring out localization stuff, um, scouting partnership opportunities, talking to government officials, like whatever it took, trying to figure out what the schooling ecosystem looked like. Very non-product in a way, just kind of trying to figure out how to make this thing grow. And then um, they asked me to do that same thing um, all over the world. So I went to Europe, Asia, and all these crazy countries to launch Duolingo. The only interaction I had with like with the more of the product type stuff uh, during that time was one on the localization and uh, internationalization front. I, I, I didn't yeah. see it as a product thing. I just saw it as like, hey guys, like this is how this is how this looks here. Should we be thinking about doing things this way? Like 
are we sure that like we were translating things properly, whatever. So like from that perspective. And then also I was trying to befriend all of the local app store people in all the different countries to get us featured in that country. So that's kind of like, it was very light interaction. It wasn't until about two and a half or three maybe years in when they said to me, hey, we really need someone to own our daily active users and our growth metrics. And it kind of feels like you're the, you know, the most natural person to do that because I'd, all of my PR and communication, social media, whatever I did was always rated based on how well, how much it impacted DAUs anyway. Um, yeah. And they were thinking of hiring externally, but in, in the end decided to, to promote me to sort of that role. Um, I didn't know what growth was. I actually went back to my desk and Googled growth, like growth <laughs> apps. <laughs> Like, what is it? And then that's when I discovered Andrew Chen's blog that day. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, okay, look at this dude. And I started reading his blog. And like, that's when I started learning. Um, And in the beginning, all I had was like, this one engineer was a backend engineer and me. And they were like, do something. And I'm like, I got this. Don't worry, guys. And I'm like, Googling, like, what do I do? (laughs) Please tell me. Um, And so that's when I, when I started working with that. And it was, uh, it was really exciting to grow from, from day zero. That's awesome. Okay. So let's talk about um, still on the Duolingo. Yeah, still on the Duolingo front. Because we've spoken many times over the years and presented and stuff about the press work. Because Duolingo, correct me if I'm wrong, was not really a major, you know, paid UA thing. Maybe it has never been. So um, when you think about similarly early stage companies, like what do you recommend to them? to try to have similar press success? I mean, did you, was there any unique approach that you took or were you just reaching out to people? Like what, what, what do you think was the real driver? I am a big recommender of avoiding paid acquisition if you can for as long as possible. And that's what we yeah. did at Go, and we didn't start doing paid acquisition until maybe the end of year. F- honestly, like I think the fifth year of the company, maybe fourth or fifth year. Uh, so mm-hmm. we really focused on organic, which forced us to be, really strategic about like the product and making something that people really like and, and focusing on our retention numbers um, and and yeah, and telling a good story for, for press. There are, I, I can't recommend that to everyone because there are instances in which you really do need the paid growth for a reason or another, e- even if it is just to help you reach an audience that can then help you figure things out product-wise or reach statistical significance, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but so in terms of PR, I, I started doing that with Tumblr. I didn't know what PR was. I just thought, okay, these guys want me to help them grow and I have no budget. What do I do? And I thought like, well, you know, if I get, if, if I could get like the tech section of this like major newspaper that I read, they have like a tech, like little, like, I don't know, column uh, once mm-hmm. a week. If I get that guy to write something really cool about Tumblr, maybe people will discover Tumblr. And then I was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I reach this person? And so I was like, started, started Googling. Then I was like, okay, I think I can like, maybe I can find them on LinkedIn or Twitter. So I looked them up and then sent them a message. And then I thought, well, it's not just this column. Like where, who else would write about Tumblr? Maybe, you know what I'm thinking? Well, actually, actually like there's a lot of fashion stuff on Tumblr. Maybe there's an interesting story there. Maybe, oh my God, there's like sports and food and I can actually tailor this to all these different ways. And that's kind of how I started doing PR. I just didn't know that that was what it was. And I also started getting better at understanding what it is that I had to say or write to get people to be interested. So um, for example, like I could just say, hi, my name is Gina. I'm blah, blah, blah. I already lost that person. Or I could say like, hey, I'm working with this 
site and they're doing like also lost that person like what are the things i have to say immediately to make people go like okay this is interesting and so that's when i like started dropping all the signifiers i possibly could into the first sentence and being like um us new york based because that means a lot in brazil new york based like david carp has blah blah you know like and then just started like finding like how, how do i how are they already have this many users and this many in brazil and like and then I figured out also that like if I added like a time component to it and made it really urgent that they were much more likely to respond to like they are available for conversation for two days this week and then never again, you know, like, I don't know, <laughs> like engineer would be like, hey, guys, you need to come visit Brazil because then I actually can say that like, you're going to be physically in Brazil for like three days. And that's the only time that you get to interview them. And right. anyways, I started understanding those trends that worked out really well for Tumblr. So then when I started my company, that was kind of part of the playbook. With Duolingo, we definitely kept kept that going, and my playbook there was was kind of like back. It, it was a little, I think, inverse from what you would think about. Like you, I wouldn't just go and reach out to press. I would think, what would interest press? I would make that thing happen, and then I would reach out to, to press afterwards. So let's say, for example, we're going into Turkey, where no one knows Duolingo, no one knows Luis Vanan, and maybe the captcha story is also not just you know, people don't really know the whole captcha thing. Who like how do I get journalists to care about Luis Vanan? Well, um, I know what journalists do care about, which is their most important university. I think that if their most important university invites Luis to give a really important talk, then suddenly this means that this guy is important. Like it adds meaning to him and, and to the work. And if I get a second important conference at the same time and, and he can speak there, then we can like kill two birds with, with one stone. And I, I, I can reach out to PR and say, Luis Vanan has been invited by Webrazzi and Boazic University, blah, 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 blah. And suddenly this, no one heard of him, but they go, oh, like, um, I guess I'm behind the times and I should know about this person because he was invited by all these important people, you know, like. Right, right, right. So that kind of became my, my, my playbook um, internationally, at least for the first two years or so, um, figuring out kind of like how to how to befriend journalists, how to understand what stories they were interested in, and sometimes how to actually backtrack and, and do the thing that would then interest them. Like, let's do a government partnership. You'd think that the government partnership would help you grow, but governments are super slow. So that didn't actually help us grow. But reaching out to press and saying, we are now partners of your government is a big thing. And that reaches a lot of people who then think that you have credibility. Did you ever in Duolingo create, uh, you know, like create content, like aggregate statistics and, you know, we get this, like any of that kind of stuff or, or, or was it more um, personality based with like the CEO and, you know, that kind of thing? Well, totally. Like data stories are super interesting. So we just started out the personality thing because that was kind of my easiest, like lowest hanging fruit at the time. And that was like, yeah. at, one, at one point you have to stop telling the, the origin, the company origin story. It kind of gets boring. Yeah. Although let me tell you that like two years later, all the journalists have already like gone to another publication and the new people won't bother to check if they've written about this before and they will write about it again. So don't <laughs> give up. But yes, database stories are, are, are great because journalists are looking for, for new information, new trends. And um, oftentimes uh, as if you, if you have like a successful app or if you're really paying attention to a certain vertical, you have a really good grasp of what might be interesting, what trends you're seeing, what trends your competitors are seeing. Um, actually, someone I spoke to recently said like that what they did, this is a, a big company here in Brazil, a big, a big a tech company. They would do surveys with their user base or even like more broadly, like 
about their whatever. So it was a real estate company, like who, you know, where are you looking to buy and whatever. And like, and they would get that from that data from their user base, but also externally, and then put package that up neatly in a way that made them look good and then send it to journalists. Um, it's a lot more interesting because you basically now just did a lot of the work that the journalists would have to do in terms of verifying things. You have numbers, you have statistics. Um, so I would think about it in the from the perspective of what can I do to make that journalist's life easier and more interesting today? So if I'm going to give them a story, what are they going to need from the story and what's going to make this really interesting for them and for their readers? And the more you're able to answer that question, the more likely they are to actually just take you up on it. Did you Did you always do the outreach, you know, kind of manually slash yourself? Or did you ever find that, especially as Duolingo grew and submitted, you know, ma different major markets, retaining quote unquote PR agencies was actually beneficial to, to get to some of the right people? Uh, look, at the time, I was very bullish on just do it yourself because I mm -hmm. had not had good experience experiences with PR agencies. And my, and my hunch is that in general, and this, of course, there are amazing exceptions, but in general, PR agencies don't have to, don't have the same incentives as you do as your ambassador at the company, because the PR agency is trying to maintain a relationship with their clients and make the clients happy, but they're also trying to maintain great relationships with the journalists. Right. So that's their like bread and butter. So if I Duolingo, I'm like, Hey, I needed to pitch this to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, da, 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 da. they're going to think like, this is, I'm not going to do this because every, if I have to email my contact at the New York times every day with someone else who asked for that, like they're, they're going to block me and they're not going to think anything I say is relevant. So I have to be very careful about what I'm going to send to the New York times, which is like, that's what I would do if I was a, a person who was, who was doing PR because yeah, you don't want to piss off the New York times guy like you, you or woman. Um, but as, as the, um, you know, the spokesperson for your company or for the head of growth, you, it's not that you want to, you want to piss off anyone, but you have a lot more of an incentive to just do what they call in PR spray and pray, which is considered to be a big <laughs> faux pas, which is when you right. just go and you ask everyone to write about you and you like try to make it work without pissing people off. Like you can't, like if you pitch seven people at the New York times, this will never happen. If you pitch seven people at TechCrunch and like two of them write, like write about you, they're going to get really mad because like right. you just, you just made their lives harder. So not, not doing that kind of thing. And of course, giving people exclusives when, when appropriate, but in general, just trying to get whoever to write about you. That's your incentive. So doing that internally is, is easier. Also, journalists really like hearing from, especially like the CEO or the founder of a company. It's like, you don't have yeah. a middleman there. So that is also an advantage many times. It was really tough because journalists and editors change jobs a lot. They get fired or they quit or they move on. It's just a very fluid industry. And so I would, you know, collect all of these amazing uh, I don't know, like a little, I would have my little roll of decks of, of people that I had contact. And I had a Google sheet, like spreadsheet of like 10 different tabs, each for the, each country that I was. So I'd be like Brazil, Turkey, China, India, like, and trying to maintain that. But then you email that same person like six months later and the email bounces because they're gone. Yeah. And now you have to figure out. So that's super hard and time consuming and et cetera. It was really worthwhile for us at the beginning. If you're able to find an amazing, very small boutique agency, who's going to treat you like like a major client and as, and you know, they already have all the contacts pre-established, et cetera, it could be advantageous. And also you could use something like Cision, which I didn't know about until I hired someone in PR and they were like, why are you not using Cision? There's, there's also a cheap Cision now, but basically like a database of all the emails of journalists. However, I do think that reaching out piecemeal is effective because I was reaching out to people on LinkedIn or Twitter. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a random person. They could see my profile there. And so they knew yeah. what, immediately knew who I was and 
you know, that I had some credibility. So I think that helps me get through the door. Awesome. I love it. Okay. So that's the main Duolingo thing that I wanted to hit, although I'll have, I'll have a few more, but before I give my, my, give my last couple topics, could you tell me what you're doing now? Cause I don't even know, like, what are you doing now? Who knows? My parents don't know. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and I'm very happy to talk about Duolingo all day, every day. Cause we did some really cool product led growth stuff there too. Um, totally. and you know, that's, it's a, the bulk, that was my school. That was my growth school for sure. Um, so I went on to then work on the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. Um, um, so I did that, which from a growth perspective was fascinating because we were, you know, spending like a million dollars a day in like in the whole company. I, with my budget, I was able to reach statistical significance on like landing page modifications, like three times a day, which is crazy because normally you wait two weeks for numbers. I'd be like, oh, this is like 2% conversion rate. Now I made this one. Oh, now it's 5%. Now it's 12%. Like, <laughs> no, because we're reaching, we're just reaching so many people. So that was fun. Um, and then that's also when I met, around the time when I met um, this guy called Brian Reckworth. Brian is an American from California who sold three companies in Latin America. And the third one he just sold last year for $600 million. So pretty successful tech entrepreneur. $600 million in, in Brazil is a lot. Like yeah. it's, you know, our, our, our currency is worth like what, one fifth of the dollar right now. Um, and so we ended up talking about the tech ecosystem in Latin America from a perspective, from two perspectives. One just like, oh my gosh, like, why is it so hard to be a tech entrepreneur? What are all the difficulties? Why, et cetera. But on the other hand, look at how much opportunity there is. Just look at how much low hanging fruit because the ecosystem is many years behind that of the US and other developed countries. And the problems to solve are much bigger in terms of like infrastructure, um, health, uh, banking, whatever, you name it, uh, safety. Um, and, and there are really amazing entrepreneurs that I had been meeting and he'd been meeting as well. I'm a mentor for a, a, an organization called Endeavor and they're very big internationally. They help uh, companies grow internationally. Um, and I, I just met some really fascinating people who had in fact studied at like Stanford or MIT or had worked at Uber or whatever. And I had the same right. experience as some of the people I was meeting in Silicon Valley, but were going back to their home countries to help to start solving problems there. And we just thought like, what can we do to help bridge that gap and to help support early stage tech companies so that we can potentially 10X the number of very successful tech companies coming out of the region. Uh, it's also behind India and China, you know, like even if as a developing country, we're super behind. And so we, we started plotting out kind of like, what are the things we think are missing that make it so that much more difficult for an early stage tech founder to get off the ground and what can we do to support them? And that's when we decided to build Latitude and this Latitude without an E at the end, because that's how you say it in Spanish. My American friends make fun of me and they say it's Latitude and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Latitude.com. Um, we started building that and it's basically like, yeah, we're trying to build a lot of different parts of the ecosystem out, down, down here, so to speak. Um, so we started with a, uh, like a fellowship for early stage founders who already have kind of like an MVP, but like seed stage and connecting them. So the first thing is community, connecting them to each other because one of the coolest things about the US, especially Silicon Valley, and now more so New York, is that entrepreneurs kind of know each other. And, and honestly, even if you go on a date, is my experience in San Francisco, even if you go on a date, you end up having a, a tech startup conversation where like yeah. you find out like who is doing this, how, for, what for design and how they solve this growth problem and you know where to hire an engineer. You just, you're constantly learning and sharing knowledge. And that doesn't exist in many other places. And it definitely doesn't exist down here. 
and especially across borders because Latin America is perceived as one by the US, but here we, we all are very sort of separate from each other. Like Mexico's Mexico, Brazil's Brazil. We don't even speak the same language. We have a different culture. Right. The truth is our languages are very similar and we have a, a lot of the same problems, like the, the corruption, the danger, like it, all of that stuff, it, there's a lot of similarities. So connecting those minds and helping share knowledge in terms of like somewhat learning from someone who is succeeding and they're like one year or two years ahead of you in Latin America can really expedite your, your success. And for an entrepreneur, like a week that they could have spent researching something, but they were able to solve in a day, that's, that's like light years because um, as an entrepreneur, every day counts and you're losing money and you're constantly trying to not die. So that's the number one thing, like community. And the second thing is mentorship. Um, there are amazing mentors everywhere, but the thing is that there's just a lot less successful tech companies in Latin America. They're still mostly in the US and, and now more so from other countries as well. And so why would you, you know, why wouldn't you get mentorship from the best of the best if you could? And it's hard having access to those people, but I know a lot of people now because I spend so much time kind of in the ecosystem. Brian is also pretty well, well connected. And so we, 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 we bridge that gap and help people really learn from the best of the best. Um, regardless of where they are. And then the third part is capital. There's a lot less cap, like but just VC firms, like it's a lot less of a developed ecosystem down here, but also it's just a lot harder to break into. Like people don't really know what VC is and how to play the game and what it means and how to pitch. And if you're not in the little boys club that like is part of the VC world, you just have no way in. And so yeah. trying to break those those boundaries too. And so that's that's latitude. And we're doing a number of different initiatives to help solve those problems. Amazing. And I mean, this is not a not-for-profit thing, although clearly it's mission-driven, like you're going to potentially make money as investors, I guess. Is that Yeah, we're, you know, we're a, tech, a typical startup answer. We're figuring out our monetization strategy. Got it. Okay. Um, but yes, we, we are raising a fund. We'll probably raise something like small, like $5 million by the end of the year. We made one investment. We're probably going to invest in two more or so. So long-term, I think we can make, we can make money with investments because we are getting to know the top tech founders from the entire region in a region that we believe is going to go crazy in the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, Short-term, like we are, so we're raising a rolling fund and so we can retain um, some fees and that can allow us to pay our operations. But then also we're trying to figure out how to monetize like the actual programs that we're building. So far they've been free, equity free, because we don't want to get in the way of entrepreneurs in any way, but um, I'm launching a, an ideation uh, fellowship in May, which is basically like a, a program for people who are in the time of their lives that I found myself in after Duolingo, which is like, I think I want to be a, an entrepreneur. I want to, I want to build something in tech. I have ideas, but I don't know exactly what it is. And I'm not really sure how to move forward. And then you're in this awkward phase where people are like, what do you do? And you're like, I'm an entrepreneur. And they're like, cool, what are you doing? And you're like, nothing i'm thinking about it you know like what's your idea yeah. I, don't, I don't know yet like it's so awkward and you feel so crappy about yourself and then eventually like an amazing job offer comes by and you take it because they're just like yeah. whatever like so i want to build a program that like helps fit that moment for people here in latin america um and bring more people that wouldn't otherwise think about becoming tech entrepreneurs especially women to to the dark side and help solve the problem i love that yeah i i you know the, I've, I've run into a few though. So obviously, you know, the Reforge guys, they have people who are like uh, in residence. Um, yes. I came across a program here. Maybe you've seen it there. It was called On Deck, not the lending yes. company, but like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like I had that's personally, 
um, I had, I had an EIR title at a fund for six to 12 months, which was really nice of them. But like, I didn't like do anything. I couldn't come up with anything. So I basically started an agency, which is okay. Um, yeah. but, uh, that's awesome. I, I could, that's such a vacuum. Cause you're exactly right. You, you have some cool job, you leverage that cool job title into consulting for three to five brands. You do that for a year, year and a half that gets kind of boring or lame or annoying more, more than anything because being a service provider sucks. And then, you know, not Uber, but the next Uber hits you up and it's, oh yeah, well, I guess I'm working the next Uber. Exactly. Why not? Like that's, I, I can completely relate to that. Um, and it's such a, yeah, it's such a like sort of, it feels inevitable um, that, that path. So having an alternative option with structure, I think is, is a huge value for people who like want to do that, but maybe don't have the idea. Okay, I, I have a question about uh, LATAM stuff. So, you know, American guy, don't know those markets meaningfully. I look at, but, but I've run into in my own career, the rocket internet type approach, which is not solely, but at least initially, like take thing, clone, take thing, clone, take thing, clone. Like, I'm curious, is that still a strategy that people execute successfully? Or is that now so passe because, you know, people on the ground in local markets are ahead of anybody who would just be cloning something, you know, coming out of the US or China or Europe or something. So, I'm, so, so is that still a thing, basically? It's still a thing. I don't have a, like a, I don't have a definitive answer for this because I've heard a lot of discussion around it here uh, since since we started with Latitude. But yes, you're, you're totally right. I, I knew a lot of the Rocket guys when I was here uh, helping launch Tumblr and stuff. So I, I followed yeah. that closely. Um, now there's like among like the more like, I'm going to call them the elite entrepreneurs, like the guys who've been around for a while. There's this whole rhetoric of like, oh, like I can't take people copying ideas anymore. We need to like we need to be original. And, and I believe in that. I, I, and I, and I, I largely believe in that. I think that that's obviously the way forward because I want tech companies coming out of our region, not to be the blah of our country, but to be like blah and then use all over the world, much like many companies in China and India are now, like in addition yeah. to, of course, other yeah, countries. Look, look at gaming. I mean, look, look at gaming. Right. The top companies are all Chinese at this point. Exactly. Or like look at Israel and what they've like, they, they, they're not yep. the blah of Israel, which is super small. They've just like built like, you know, low key WhatsApp or Skype. Yeah. Um, so, um, I think we're we're in a moment where both apply because there's still great ideas and solutions that are being deployed in the US or in Europe or whatever. And those companies are probably not going to look at Latin America in the near future because it's going to be hard to monetize down here because yeah. our, our currency is just not worth that much. But they're great solutions that can be great businesses and can solve problems for people. So I I don't fully like think that like it's not a good idea. If there's if someone's not building a thing and you think you can build a solution right now, then do it. You know, like maybe you're gonna have to sell to them or whatever. But long term, I, I do want us to graduate to being an ecosystem where we're actually building our own things. And I see a lot of that happening now. Um, the companies that we're accepting into Latitude, I would say very few, if any of them. I, I'm I'm not gonna say none because I'm not sure, but the vast majority are are um, innovative ideas. Just yesterday, I spoke to an amazing founder from um, Peru, and I wish I could remember the name of the company so I could promote her, but I can't the second. Um, <laughs> and she was building something that was basically like the, I think it was like a fitness pass or class pass for mm -hmm. Peru. 
And because of the pandemic and everything went south so quickly, they had to sort of like figure things out. And now they're building this amazing platform that I haven't seen anywhere else that like solves for like a, a lot of like health and, and wellness problems on a, in a B2B uh, sphere. And so I think that's cool too. Sometimes you need to start out with an idea that you think is amazing and that will then the market will and your work in the market will help you evolve towards something brand new. But to answer your question, there's there's still some of both and we're, you know, we're sort of in that in that middle. I honestly think that like if American or like, you know, Silicon Valley, quote unquote, entrepreneurs were to spend time in China and identify opportunities, there's no reason why they wouldn't want to do the same thing. And with 100%. reason, it might take a long time for, for that Chinese entrepreneur to really, maybe it's hard for the US to think about these things because everyone wants to go to the US. And so like, it's an obvious market. Um, whereas like Latin America, we're just going to be like year four or five, you know, for most startups. Yeah. 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 yeah no, I mean, I think, um, I think, I think you're exactly right. I, I don't, I don't think that's really happening yet, at least not meaningfully, but you know, the meal kit space, that was a European concept that was imported to the U S like blue apron and stuff. So it's not, really? it's not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not at all without, without precedent. Um, okay. And so Adam, just one thing, cause I learned this yesterday and super interesting. I yeah. found out about a fund here in Brazil. What they do is I also don't know their name. I, I'm, I'm crap at promoting anyone, but what they do <laughs> is they look for amazing startups operating out of like, um, Sweden and or just the Nordic countries and find op like business opportunities that seem like they would work really well in Latin America. They then contact that company and convince them to like basically get a partner who's a local like Latin America partner who's going to build them out here. They support them from with the tech and make it happen. And I think that's like that's a hybrid, really interesting approach too. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I mean, the Nordic countries just like your Israel example, grossly over index, you know, in our industry in terms of especially really successful stuff. Um, okay, spectacular. Well, in the interest of time, I'll let you go. Uh, on the off chance that someone listening wanted to apply and get involved in your stuff, maybe even since most of the listeners are Americans, I don't know, I mean, as mentors or people that help, like what, how, how could people hit you up and you know, where should they contact you? How can they learn yes. more, et cetera? Well, so, so there's two ways to get involved. First, there's a lot of people in the US who are actually like originally Latin American and ran away much like me. And so if you're yeah. listening, this is for you. Um, if you're an American who's very bullish about the, the future of like growth in, of tech in Latin America, the wild, wild South, I don't know how we would call it. Then <laughs> there, I also have some, some of our, our fellows are US based or Europe based and they're building for Latin America. Um, so that's for you too. And if you just want to give back or are interested in mentoring Latin American companies, then amazing. We, we want you. And so you can get in touch either just directly with me on LinkedIn uh, or on Instagram, I'm Gina, I'm, on Twitter, I'm Gina G, or uh, you can apply through apply.latitude.com. And remember that it's latitude for an American. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love it. Well, Gina, this was spectacular. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. You can find Gina's contact information in this podcast description or at mauvegas.com. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll catch you on the next episode of MAU Talk.